Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books in Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Professor Mark Alfano. We'll be talking about his new book, Character as Moral Fiction, which was published recently by Cambridge University Press. Alfano is an assistant professor in philosophy at the University of Oregon. According to a long-standing tradition in ethical theory, the primary subject of moral evaluation is the person, or more specifically, the person's character. Aristotle stands at the head of this tradition, and he held that moral theory must take as its center a theory of the good person. He hence devised an elaborate conception of the human virtues, those dispositions and traits constitutive of the good life for human beings. Virtue ethics thrives to this day. In fact, virtue theorizing has been applied to other normative domains, including especially epistemology. In Character as Moral Fiction, Mark Alfano investigates the ways in which virtue ethics and virtue epistemology are affected by recent results from behavioral sciences which call into question the very idea that humans can sustain stable and robust character traits. Drawing on a range of empirical data, Alfano suggests a reinterpretation of the virtues. Rather than seeing them as steady and fixed dispositions to act across a broad range of situations, Alfano argues that virtue attributions should be seen more as self-fulfilling prophecies. When we properly attribute courage to a person, we heighten her tendency to behave in courageous ways. Alfano then extends this account to the intellectual virtues discussed by virtue epistemologists. Alfano's book integrates rigorous philosophical argument with a keen sensitivity to current empirical results. Character as Moral Fiction is accordingly an intriguing book. So let's turn now to the interview. Hello, Mark Alfano. Hi, Bob. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Springtime over here in Oregon. <laughs> well, it's in Nashville. It's um, it's springtime by the calendar, but uh, most of the days here feel a lot more like summer. Um, <laughs> well, thank you uh, for joining us today on New Books and Philosophy um, to talk about your book. Thanks. I'm delighted to be here. Well, great. And thank you, listeners, uh, for tuning into our podcast. Uh, today, I'm talking with Mark Alfano about his new book, which is titled Character as Moral Fiction. Um, this book explores the world of virtue theory, um, both moral and epistemic, and it assesses how our conception of the virtues, again, both moral and epistemic, is impacted by some current results from behavioral sciences. Um, there's a lot to talk about here. 
Um, but before we get into the details of the book, Mark, why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this project? Thanks, Bob. Yeah, so I got interested in philosophy in high school, uh, and like any teenager, I read some Nietzsche and decided I was the overman, uh, <laughs> and ended up going to Princeton, where I worked on uh, a senior thesis on Nietzsche as well as Wittgenstein with Alexander Nehemas. Um That was a pretty embarrassing piece of work, but uh, I'd like to think that over time one gets better. Um, after Princeton, I went to CUNY, and while I was at CUNY, I decided that I needed to stop uh, overdosing on history of philosophy and pay a bit more attention to contemporary work that was going on. Uh, and I got very interested in particular in moral psychology. Uh, in fact, the, the first introduction that I had to it was through Anthony Appiah's book, um, Experiments in Ethics. And one of the things in that book, one of the chapters, involves what came to be known as the situationist challenge to virtue ethics, which, um, depending on how far you go back, is either due to Owen Flanagan, uh, though he didn't push it nearly as hard as others did, uh, or more traditionally, people will say that it's due to John, John Doris and Gil Harmon. So while I was at CUNY, uh, Jesse Prince showed up, and I immediately begged him to be my advisor, and he agreed very generously. Uh, I was only about a month away from starting my dissertation, uh, and I ended up working on, uh, on this challenge, the Situationist Challenge to Virtue Ethics. Um, the uh, dissertation that I wrote uh, was titled Factitious Virtue. Uh, people sometimes think that I'm making up the word factitious. Uh, in fact, I was told that I shouldn't uh, make up words in a title by a number <laughs> of fairly prominent people. Uh, it turns out that factitious is a word in English, um, and what it means is something like artificial, like an artifact, uh, something made. So something that exists but isn't exactly um, part of first nature, let's say. Um, after CUNY, I went to Notre Dame for a year and um, turned the dissertation into a book by adding uh, a second half to it that was not on virtue ethics, but instead on virtue epistemology. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, after Notre Dame, I spent uh, another year back at Princeton, this time as a postdoctoral fellow. Uh, and just this academic year, in the fall of 2013, I came to Oregon, where I started a job as an assistant professor of philosophy. Um, so that's basically where I'm coming from. And the, the book has, a, as you might see, like a, a little bit of Nietzsche in it, uh, mostly in the epigraphs, uh, but it's primarily drawing on personality psychology, social psychology, cognitive science, uh, and behavioral economics to inform uh, theory of virtue. Hmm. Let me just ask a very quick question, um, because there have been a couple of um, people I've interviewed for New Books in Philosophy who um, have mentioned um, philosophy in high school. Um, did you have a philosophy class in high school, or were you just introduced to philosophy while you were in high school by some other uh, means. I went to a, a very good public school in New Jersey. There was no philosophy class as such, but uh, one of my teachers in particular, Dave Murphy, uh, who a teacher of English um, in my junior year, 
introduced me to Nietzsche and Plato and a couple of other philosophers. He was just a, a very intellectual kind of guy, and he liked to put the literature that we read in uh, a larger intellectual context. Ah, interesting, interesting. I went to high school in New Jersey as well. We had a philosophy class, which I would imagine is a very rare thing and a surprising thing to find in New Jersey, maybe. Um, <laughs> Because we're from there, we can say that kind of thing. All right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, <laughs> thank you. Um, so, let, let's get to, to talking about the book. Um, so, uh, the um, character's moral fiction begins with an introduction, which uh, I think was very helpful um, in that it uh, had some methodological uh, remarks, but also um, provided, I thought, a very nice uh, taxonomy of... Um, you know, various approaches to ethical theorizing, and maybe even we might say various approaches to what uh, we used to call meta-ethics. Um, but in particular, could, could you tell us a little bit about your conception of naturalism in ethics? Because this is clearly a naturalist ethical program that you're pursuing here. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I guess it's um, fairly common now to distinguish between substantive and methodological naturalism, not only in, in ethics, but more generally. Um, and I take that kind of distinction on board. So a, a substantive naturalist uh, comes in different degrees, a very strong kind of substantive naturalist, say like someone like Quine would say that you're only allowed to try to refer to things with your own theories that are very well substantiated by uh, the best science that we have. So, you know, he's got this idea of uh, what what science quantifies over is what should figure in your ontology. Um, and one could even go so far as to say, well, only the hard sciences count because they're somehow harder or special. Um, that's obviously not going to get us anywhere uh, in ethics. And even if one allows the social sciences and the human sciences to uh, come into play, just restricting yourself to the things that science quantifies over won't actually give you a theory. It'll just give you an ontology for a theory. So I, I try to take this sort of softer version of substantive naturalism, and then I supplement it with a kind of methodological naturalism. Uh, methodological naturalism has a, a lot of varieties, but one way of thinking of it is that um, the methods of science and the methods of philosophy are continuous with each other. So uh, scientists will draw conceptual distinctions, something that philosophers are very fond of doing from the armchair. Um, I, I recently uh, got involved with uh, a psychology PhD dissertation where it turned out that the, concept, the conceptual distinctions that the student needed to make were all things that came straight out of speech act theory. So it turned out that, you know, the, you can't do good science without making good conceptual distinctions. And that's something that, um, that philosophers are helpful with. Um, but just drawing distinctions isn't, isn't going to be enough. I think that the uh, directions of influence go in sort of both directions and that a good uh, philosophical practice is to also um, try to employ something like inference to the best explanation, as science does. And what that will mean in, uh, for instance, ethics, is that um, one doesn't just sit down and say, well, what, what are some conceptual distinctions that we can draw uh, between notions of goodness and badness, 
and evil, between rightness, wrongness, permissibility, and uh, 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 obligation, um, between virtue and vice, uh, self-control, continence, and incontinence, one asks further, well, what uh, empirical research is there that's relevant to this, and what does it suggest about whether these distinctions that we're inclined to draw from the armchair are actually any good, that they're cutting reality at the joints. So the the kind of naturalism that I'm trying to employ doesn't just say, well, I'm only going to refer or try to refer to certain things. It also says um, the kinds of distinctions that I'm going to draw are the sorts of things that will be informed by my reading of the best relevant scientific research. Uh, And in in my case, that's primarily uh, stuff from psychology. Right. And do you see, or I, I take it that you see that this version of naturalism as applied to or as manifest in ethical theory enables you to uh, more naturally um, theorize what you call, or theorize in a mode that you call moral technology. Can you tell us a little bit about moral technology? Absolutely. Um, so I, I think of it as a kind of um, uh, developmental thing. So we, there are sort of three parts to the method that I employ. There's the normative theory itself, which sets up a kind of ideal, and uh, that ideal could be a moral ideal in the case of virtue ethics or some other sort of um, moral theory. Uh, it could be uh, an intellectual ideal in the case of virtue epistemology or something like that. Um, but in any event, there's uh, a kind of normative theory that says, uh, what sorts of things are good or worth pursuing uh, and what sorts of things are bad or worth avoiding. And then one needs to also engage with two other projects. One is a kind of moral psychology, which doesn't ask um, what should we be like or what should we do or how should we be motivated, but instead says, well, what are we actually like? Uh, how are we typically motivated and what do we typically do. Um, And then moral technology is meant to span the gap between these two. So moral technology gets us from how we are, as moral psychology describes us, to how we ought to be, or at least closer to how we ought to be as normative theory uh, prescribes for us. I see, I see. All right. Um, So you've been uh, mentioning now a, a a couple of times that the book um, sort of runs in these two these two parts. One is uh, an engagement with uh, virtue ethics, and the other is an engagement with uh, virtue epistemology. Um, so let's start with the the virtue ethics uh, side. Um, now, um, virtue ethics is at least to an outsider like me, it seems like a kind of motley term. There's there's a lot of different views that uh, um, are interested in virtue or a lot of different kinds of views that claim to be uh, virtue-theoretic views. Um, and it's hard, again, maybe uh, this is just a misperception from somebody of somebody from the outside. It seems like there's a, a lot going on under the banner of virtue ethics that is not... Um, not well unified. Um, so one of the first tasks that you set for yourself in the book is to identify what you call the hard core of uh, virtue ethics. Can you tell us a little bit about what you think that sort of core of central commitments um, in ethical value theory uh, uh, is for the virtue theorist? 
Yeah, so you're right that virtue theory is often um, sort of a, a grab grab bag. If you just look mm-hmm. at all of the people who talk about virtue, you're not going to get uh, a perfectly coherent notion of um, what a virtue theory is. I, I think it's useful to follow Julia Driver in distinguishing a virtue theory, which is just any normative theory about virtue, on the one hand, from virtue ethics, which is a special kind of virtue theory, which tries to define or account for other normative features in terms of virtues. Mm-hmm. So um, Driver ends up formulating um, a, a theory of virtue that's merely virtue theoretic. So she is a utilitarian at, at base and thinks that virtues can be enti- uh Virtues can be defined in terms of utility as roughly dispositions that uh, if one acts on them over the course of one's lifetime in ordinary circumstances will tend to promote more utility than not. Um, that's not going to count as um, a virtue ethics, according to her or according to most other people, because a virtue ethics doesn't start with utility and then move to, to virtue. It goes in the other direction and says that we can for instance, determine what it is right to do based on what a virtuous person would do, or that we can tell that uh, a certain kind of outcome is good because it's the sort of thing that a virtuous person would pursue or promote or protect. So the, the key claim that distinguishes a virtue ethics from merely a virtue theory is that uh, is a kind of order of priority. The priority starts with an account of virtue and then moves to the other normative properties or features. Okay, and so for the for the hardcore of virtue ethics then proper, uh, what sort of um, commitments must a ethical theory have now in the, the broader sense? Uh, uh, what kind of features must an ethical theory have if it's going to count as a case of virtue ethics? Um, yeah, so I, I try in the book to develop uh, a, a theory about which there might be at least some consensus, and uh, it turns out to be a somewhat involved list. So one of the things is that uh, has to do with moral contemplation, and <laughs> the idea here is that, uh, as Bernard Williams would put it, the, the most basic ethical question as one deliberates is... Uh, according to virtue theory, virtue ethicists, at least, not what should I do uh, or what should I prefer or how should I be motivated, but rather what sort of person should I be? How should I live? Um, <laughs> and if one starts with that, uh, one is on the path towards a virtue theory. You can think of the fact that, you know, we, we talk to kids and we ask them not um, what do you want to do when you grow up, but what do you want to be? When you grow up, it seems to be, in a sense, the most uh, basic way to deliberate about one's life. Um, uh, in, in my intro ethics class, I sometimes ask my students to tell me uh, what five things they'd like said about them in their own obituaries. And the things that they almost always end up talking about are not particular achievements or particular motives that they might have or uh, particular things they might do or avoid, but rather the sorts of person that they would be uh, loving, caring, adventurous, and so on. So part of the hardcore virtue ethics is this idea of 
uh, virtue and moral contemplation, that contemplate, contemplating the virtues is a better way to guide one's behavior, to guide one's life, um, than any other sort of basic normative category. Um, another has to do with moral evaluation. So when we evaluate morally, sometimes we talk about what somebody did and whether it was good or bad, right or wrong. Sometimes we talk about the consequences uh, that someone produced or tried to produce, whether they were uh, good or full of utility or promoting well-being or something like that. Um, and sometimes we talk instead about the person or the agent who performed the action. And we can say things like, well, you didn't do the wrong thing, but you were kind of a jerk. Or um, you, you tried to do the right thing. It didn't work out, but you're still a kind person. And uh, that sort of evaluation seems to be at least as important as the more uh, act-based or motive-based form of evaluation. When we think about who we want to spend our time with, who we want to be our friend, who we want to be our lover, um, what we want our family members to be like, what we want ourselves to be like. Um, the most important object of evaluation, at least according to virtue ethicists, is not the act or the motive, but rather uh, the person. So those two, I think, are part of the core of virtue ethics. Um, another thing that seems to me to be part of the core of virtue ethics is this refusal to fall into the naturalistic fallacy, um, this refusal to try to draw a sharp distinction between purely descriptive and purely normative concepts, thoughts, uh, language, and behavior. So virtue ethicists will often insist that talk of virtue is uh, going to draw on thick concepts. And mm -hmm. concepts count as thick uh, according to this way of thinking of things if they have both descriptive and normative components and it's more or less impossible to separate them. They're inextricable. So, for instance, uh, someone who's courageous. Well, if I tell you that someone is courageous, that's a kind of praise, right? So it's it's got a normative component to it. But it also seems to be fairly easily, easily used in describing and uh, predicting and explaining someone's behavior, right? So if you see someone standing up to a threat and I tell you, ah, yes, she's courageous, then if my attribution is true, you've learned something that helps you explain why she did what she did. Uh, similarly, with predicting behavior, uh, if you know that someone is, say, dishonest, then you won't leave your laptop on the table when they're around and you get up to go to the bathroom because you can predict that they will or at least they might steal it. Uh, but in the same way, being honest is, uh, is a good thing, or at least we tend to think it is. So the, the idea here is that the language of virtue is inextricably um, both descriptive and normative and that this is actually a feature rather than a bug. It's something that helps us avoid um, committing the naturalistic fallacy. Um, the, there's a couple of other things that uh, I consider as part of the hardcore of virtue ethics. I'll, I'll just briefly go through them. So sure. one is that virtue is, uh, is action guiding. Uh, and the idea here is that if you realize that something that you're about to do either is or is not 
going to express virtue, then that will make it clear at once, as Elizabeth Anscombe claimed, whether you should do it. So knowing that something promotes utility won't motivate, but at least according to people like Anscombe, knowing that something is unjust will motivate someone to avoid it. Um, And uh, just briefly, uh, there's also this idea that uh, virtue is especially useful for moral education, um, and that's tied back to this idea of asking children what they want to be when they grow up. Uh, The way that one becomes a good person, according to a virtue theory, is that one... uh, one uh, attempts to cultivate virtues. One doesn't just try to promote the good or act from universalizable maxims or something like that. So very briefly, the the hardcore of virtue ethics that I at least claim to identify in the book uh, involves um, uh, the sort of uh, predictive and explanatory power of virtues, uh, the fact that virtues are normative in the sense that having one is better than having none and having more is better than having fewer, um, that we have some kind of access to them so that we could strive to acquire them, uh, that they are in fact acquirable. And then finally, and this is where the sort of situationist challenge comes in, that virtue possession is both stable over time and consistent across situations. So someone who's honest, who's really honest, won't just be honest towards their friends. Someone who's uh, courageous, like really courageous, won't uh, just face threats when the sun is shining. It's the sort of thing that uh, lasts over time and the sort of thing that uh, can be deployed in a wide variety of situations. Right. Excellent. That's that's very helpful. So, and it also uh, where we where you just ended up helps uh, with the next question, which is, so describe for us then the situation as challenge, which I take it is just by the name, uh, it's sort of uh, predictably, it's a it's a challenge that says that. Uh, um, maybe our individual behavior has more to do with the environment or the situation under which we're acting than anything attributable to, you know, uh, these sort of Aristotelian stable dispositions within an agent. Yeah. So uh, the the idea with the situationist challenge is um, it's a little bit nuanced. It's easy to get it to say it wrong. So let me see if I can make sure I do this right. The idea with the situationist challenge is not just that how someone is disposed to think, feel, desire, uh, and act is determined to some extent by the situation she finds herself in. Because, of course, that's something that we already know, right? If the, the lights are on, you'll act differently than if the lights are off, because you can see. Uh, if um, you're in extreme pain, uh, you'll act very differently than if you're not in pain at all because uh, you, you can concentrate more easily when you're not in pain and so on. So the idea with the situationist challenge is not that simply that there are things that can happen to us that make us act differently. Uh, after all, uh, even uh, non-human animals respond differentially to different situations. And in fact, even um, uh, non-animals, uh, non-living things respond differently based on the context that they're in. 
uh, a stone will fall if it's dropped in the air, and it won't fall if it's just set down on a table. So the idea with the situationist challenge is that the suite or signature of situational features to which we are actually disposed to respond is quite different and in normatively important ways different from the suite or signature of cues that a virtue theory would have us respond to. And what I mean by that is this, a virtue is among other things, a disposition to notice certain reasons in the environment. So a courageous person will notice threats better than someone who's not courageous. Uh, and a loyal person will notice um, uh, opportunities to prove loyal more easily than someone who's not loyal. Um, but it turns out that the things that actually predict and explain whether someone will do the loyal thing or the courageous thing or the honest thing uh, are at least as much a matter of completely normatively irrelevant and also seemingly trivial features of the environment and not in particular, not reasons like that. So for instance, um, uh, the mood that you're in, if you are in a slightly happy mood because uh, you just found some change in a, uh, a payphone, or if someone has just given you a small gift or someone has uh, allowed you to eat a cookie or someone has told you that you successfully solved an anagram, you'll be disposed to behave differently than if that hadn't happened. And in ways that reflect on whether uh, it makes sense to attribute the virtue, for instance, of open-mindedness to you or the virtue of kindness to you. Um, and in the book, I try to come up with a catalog of at least some of these sort of interfering factors, these things that uh, make us act uh, unvirtuously. Um, and some of them are just bad reasons like temptations or demand characteristics or someone coerces you. And these are unsurprising. We've known about temptations for thousands of years. Um, the ones that are really worrisome are, are these, I call them situational non-reasons. And they include things like ambient sounds. So people will be much less helpful when the ambient sound level is above 80 decibels than when it's below that. Um, they involve things like ambient smells. Uh, so it's been shown that people are uh, much more harsh in judging others uh, and in um, uh, acting retributively when they are uh, smelling something unpleasant. Um, and other sort of sensible cues like the lighting level in the room will predict pretty well whether people will behave dishonestly. Uh, and then there's also things like uh, mood elevators and mood depressors, um, which shouldn't provide us a reason to act or provide us a reason not to act, and yet seem to predict and explain our behavior in virtue-relevant contexts. Um, so these are the sorts of things that I'm especially worried about. I don't think that any situational influence is uh, a problem, but I think that situational influences that involve seemingly trivial and normatively irrelevant features of the environment, especially when they turn out to be at least as good at predicting and explaining people's behavior 
as any kind of internal uh, or dispositional trait uh, are extremely worrisome. Right. And the, but the worry, um, the worry then is, is, well, maybe this is a question rather than an assertion. The worry is directed or targeted uh, mainly at the, the stableness of the idea of a character trait or um, the uh, the accessibility or the the learnability of a of a certain kind of character, or do these situational non reasons call into question the very idea of a character trait? Hmm. So there are ways of responding to the challenge that try to give up one uh, or another aspect of what what I try to call the, the hardcore of mm-hmm. virtue ethics. And depending on how you respond, it can look like you're saying, well, um, that was never part of the hardcore. or That's something I'm willing to give up. But it seems to me that the crucial aspects of the hardcore have to do with uh, acquirability, with consistency across situations, and with a certain kind of egalitarianism that at least modern virtue ethics tends to embrace. Right. So the idea is supposed to be like almost anyone who doesn't have a really terrible upbringing can acquire quite a few of the virtues and act on them in a consistent way across a variety of situations that don't differ from each other normatively, even if they do differ from each other in some other way, like involving uh ambient smells, ambient sounds, or the presence of mood elevators or mood depressors. Hmm. Um, Okay, so your positive proposal then is, I take it, uh, an attempt to um, salvage uh, virtue ethics, at least uh, in a certain respect. Um, You think, uh, you say in the book, that... um, character evaluations and virtue ascriptions uh, might be ineliminable. That is, that this is how we interact with each other. There might be something like a Strawson-style uh, story to be told about how, you know, we these are indispensable to um, uh, our, our common lives together to, to think in terms of these character traits. Um, but then you've got a, a positive proposal about how to salvage Virtue talk in light of um, this uh, um, these series of results that show that there are these things that don't even look plausible, like plausibly like reasons that are better predictors or at least as good predictors of our behavior. And this view that you promote is called factitious virtue. Um, tell us about that. Yeah. So the idea with factitious virtue is that for one thing, we might not be able to stop talking to and about each other and ourselves in terms of the virtues. So if we're going to do that, we should try to do so in a somewhat more responsible way. Uh, There are people like Gil Harmon who have suggested that we just give up talk of virtue, but I'm not as ambitious as all that. I, I think that that's probably just not going to happen. So given that it's not going to happen, how, what, what sort of uh, halfway measures are there? Um, And one thing that I draw on is this idea that has received a certain amount of empirical support, which is that character trait attributions tend to function as self-fulfilling prophecies. The idea here is that 
if you tell me that, for instance, I'm a tidy person, I'll be disposed to behave and to think and to reason and to feel more like a person who is actually tidy than I would otherwise. And if I tell you that you're a generous person, you'll be more disposed to ways that a generous person would. Um, there's some questions about exactly what the mechanism of that is, and I'll, I'll go into it, but it, it looks like this is fairly well substantiated for a, a decent variety of traits, including sort of minor things like tidiness, also more important things like generosity, um, negative things like stinginess, more contemporary virtues like being eco-friendly or green. Uh, and so one might think, well, okay, if we're going to keep talking in terms of the virtues anyway, why not think of the way that we're talking of them uh, as a sort of subtle way to goad each other into better behavior and goad ourselves into better behavior rather than um, simply making false assertions? So the idea there would be something like, well, you could think of it as a noble lie. You lie to someone to make them behave better, but you could think of it instead as a kind of implicit directive. When you tell me that I'm tidy, you're sort of suggesting to me that I ought to behave like a tidy person. Uh, and when I tell you that you're generous, I'm sort of directing you to act and think generously. Uh, and, and it looks like the, the psychological mechanisms that underpin this are both uh, internal to the target of the attribution and social. And what I mean by that is this. Uh, the attribution doesn't work unless, it doesn't work as a self-fulfilling prophecy unless the, it, it, it's, uh, how shall I put this, it's both plausible and to some extent public. And the idea there is, you know, if I go and make a huge mess of my room and then my mom tells me, you know, you're really tidy, I'm just going to look at her like she's crazy. But if I actually clean up and right afterwards she tells me that I'm tidy, then it'll be kind of plausible. Um, or if I see you donate money to a charity and I tell you that you're stingy, you'll look at me like I'm crazy. But if I see you donate money to a charity and I say, oh, wow, you must be a really generous person, then uh, that sort of makes some sense. It, it, there's there's some reason for the attribution. Um, when the attribution is plausible in this way, it, it can function as a self-fulfilling prophecy. The other thing that uh, often helps the attribution to work is that it's um, public. And this has to do with the social character of these attributions. The idea is that we don't like letting each other down. Uh, and we, in fact often find it just intrinsically rewarding to act as we know others expect us to act. So if you tell me that uh, I'm honest, not only do you prompt me to revise my self-concept and think of myself as a more honest person, but also you signal to me that uh, you expect me to behave in this way. Uh, and I know that. And you know that I know that. So I don't have an excuse. I can't say, well, I didn't think that you really expected me not to steal that laptop. Um, you had just told me that you thought I was honest. So the, the mechanisms there are both internal. It's how I think of myself and not wanting to let myself down. 
and external, knowing what other people expect of me and um, knowing that they know this. And it, is it true that this also works with, with vice attributions that um, uh, attributing perhaps plausibly, but certainly publicly uh, vices to people will help incur or w- will encourage them to behave more viciously? There's less evidence about that than there is. Well, about- I mean, it would be hard to do the experiments. Exactly. That's, that's part of the problem. So, so there's this issue that um, just with research ethics that you, you don't want to go around um, saying nasty things to your participants. And you also, if it turns out that these things really do function as self-fulfilling prophecies, you probably don't want to go around in your research making people vicious. Uh, but there has been some research on this, and it, it turns out that you can induce at least um, being sort of anti-environmental in people. That's work by uh, Gert Cornelison uh, over in Europe. Uh, and you can induce uh, stinginess in people. So if you ask someone to donate to a charity and they don't, and then you say, wow, you're a really stingy person, rather than just saying, well, that wasn't very nice. Right, talking about the person rather than the act. Uh, and then uh, a few weeks later, someone else asks them for a donation to a worthy charity. They'll actually be less disposed to give than if you had just said something about their action or said nothing. Well, that's interesting and maybe frightening. Um, yeah, so that's why I, that's actually why I, I argue in the book that um, even if you reject a lot of the other things that I have to say, uh, you should probably accept the idea that we should have asymmetric standards of evidence for attributing and perhaps even for uh, mentally attributing virtues and vices to people. And the basic idea there is just through the payoff matrix. So if I tell you that you're virtuous and I'm right, well, that's, that's fantastic. And if I tell you that you're virtuous and you're not, well, maybe I'd subtly move you a little bit in that direction. Whereas if I tell you that you're vicious and you are, okay, well, bully for me, but it's not going to help, or at least there's not any evidence that it's going to help. And if I tell you that you're vicious and you're not, I could actually end up making you more vicious or making you somewhat vicious. So I, I think that we should be extremely wary of making vice attributions. This is not to say that we can't criticize people, but that when we do, we should probably focus primarily or entirely on um, what they did rather than what sort of person they are. And it should go the other way in the virtue attribute, in, in, the, in, the, in, the posi- in the praise, right? That is that the praise should be, you know, uh, indexed to the person rather than merely to the act that they do when they do something that's good. Is that right? That's the idea, yeah. Yeah, and can you speculate a bit on the what you think the mechanism is of this the the two parts of this phenomenon? Is it about forming an identity or adopting a uh, an ascripted role, or how do you think this? Why do you think it works this way? Let me just ask that. This isn't heavily thematized in the book, but I'm I'm just curious about about the phenomena now. Yeah, so I've tried to explore this a bit further in a paper I call the friendship model. Uh, of virtue. And the idea is that there are at least three ways that this sort of thing can play out. One of which has to do with something that Philip Pettit talks about when he talks about the cunning of trust. So he points out that if you explicitly put your trust in me, I'll just as a matter of psychology, I'll be somewhat more likely to want to prove trustworthy. And 
the reason he thinks this happens is that when you put your trust in me, you manifest a kind of high regard. And he thinks that among the many things that people find valuable or rewarding, right, in addition to sex, drugs, and rock and roll, they, they, like, ah. they like esteem from others. Right. So he actually argues for a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, but only in the case of trust. And the mechanism is something like desire for the continued high regard of the person who has put their trust in you. That's, as he himself admits, kind of cunning and manipulative. Uh, and uh, Tori McGear points out that it won't s- typically survive its own elevation to mutual knowledge. So if you put your trust in me in this way, thinking that you can sort of induce trustworthiness in me by making me want to um, um, preserve your high regard, and I find out that that's why you did it, then I'll probably be like, oh, screw this guy. He doesn't actually regard me highly. He's just manipulating me. Um, So I propose that there's probably some other stuff going on. One of the things that's going on is that when you put your trust in me or you you make some kind of positive uh, character trait attribution uh, about me, um, you're also prompting me to revise my self-concept. And to the extent that I can't engage in the self-deceptive psychological acrobatics needed to uh, act contrary to this nice self-concept that I've just gotten um, and yet preserve it, I'm going to be motivated to maintain it. So the idea is something like, I I enjoy the fact that you show esteem for me, but I also like my own self-esteem. And uh, it's going to be hard for me to maintain my self-esteem if I don't live up to the standards that uh, prompted me to, to have it in the first place. Um, there's other stuff going on as well, though. So uh, McGeer uh, argues, and I think that this is on the right track, that um, there's also something like becoming a role model for oneself through these attributions. And she, she talks about it in terms of hope. Uh, the basic idea here is something like this. Um, if you tell me that I'm, let's say, uh, open-minded, I might just update my self-concept and now have trouble going back. But I might also sort of think in this way, wow, I, I want to be the sort of person that she take, that, that Bob takes me to be. Right. Um, so it's, it's a way of turning yourself into a kind of role model, which is the easiest kind of role model to imitate because it has the fewest differences um, from what you're actually like. Right? Becoming like someone else is harder than becoming... Uh, like a version of yourself that uh, is is signaled to you by another person. Right. Um, well, that, that's interesting. Um, let's uh, let's move to the second part of the book, um, uh, which is the virtue epistemology um, part. So, um, in a lot of ways, the, the two parts of the book sort of uh, run a similar or analogous kind of. Of argument, um, where we've got the the virtue theoretic uh, conception, a version of a situationist challenge, the claim that the situationist challenge uh, is successful against the traditional understanding of the virtues, and then uh, the case for some um, uh, factitious version of uh, the virtues. Now, in the virtue epistemology part of the book. Um, 
obviously the, 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 the target of the situation is challenges, um, epistemic virtues understood, uh, in various ways. And just like with the moral, um, virtue theoretic stuff, um, you know, it, again, as a somewhat outsider, the, the virtue epistemology literature seems, uh, again, like we said, a, a grab bag. Um, and, uh, there are all kinds of different sorts of views that, uh, avail themselves of a virtue concept. Um, can you sort of set for us the terrain a little bit in the virtue epistemology literature? Sure. So there are two main cross-cutting distinctions that I think are relevant here. One is the distinction between reliabilism on the one hand and responsibilism on the other hand. And the other is the distinction between a kind of classical epistemology and inquiry epistemology. So I'll, I'll spell both of those out. Uh, reliabilism is uh, best attributed to Ernie Sosa, who argued in his paper, The Raft and the Pyramid, that what we need to focus on in epistemology are reliable dispositions. And what he means by a reliable disposition is uh, a disposition that leads to uh, believing more truths than falsehoods. So it's a disposition that increases the truth ratio of one's um, one's beliefs, uh, belief set. A responsibilist view, like the one that was first put forward by Lorraine Code, though of course uh, there's talk of intellectual virtues at least as far back as Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, a responsibilist virtue uh, epistemology doesn't focus merely on dispositions that happen to lead to uh, a, uh, a high truth ratio. It focuses in, instead on a kind of character development where the character traits in question aren't moral ones, but instead intellectual ones. And this is maybe easiest to explain just by uh, pointing to some examples. So the, the, these will include things like open-mindedness, intellectual courage, um, intellectual humility, curiosity, uh, conscientiousness, uh, studiousness uh, and intellectual grit, let's say. So the idea there is that, um, okay, it's nice to have eyes that tell you um, that, that are reliable detectors uh, of what's going on in the environment, and uh, that will get you true beliefs. But another thing that it's extremely important to have is a desire to know, or at least a desire to believe the truth, or at least a desire to believe what's more likely than not, uh, there are different ways of spelling it out. And the different intellectual virtues are meant to be ways of implementing that kind of um, epistemic motivation, the desire to know or the desire to believe the truth and avoid falsehood. So that's the distinction between reliabilism and responsibilism. The distinction between classical and inquiry epistemology uh, is a little more straightforward. The the basic idea here is that... Um, Epistemology, some might say, has gotten bogged down a bit in trying to answer one and only que one question, namely, under what conditions does S know that P? Uh, or maybe one other question, under one, what conditions is it correct to say or is it true that S is justified in believing that P? That's classical epistemology. Inquiry epistemology, as it was uh, laid out, as it's been laid out by Christopher Hookway, among others, tries to ask uh, more 
questions than that, uh, and questions that I think are pretty interesting. So, for instance, things like, um, is someone a praiseworthy epistemic agent? Is somebody uh, possessed of understanding or wisdom? Uh, things like that. So not questions that have to do just with the states that one is in, the mental states that one is in, whether they're beliefs that could be true or false, justified or unjustified, uh, rise to the level of knowledge, be Gettyerized, and so on, but rather what sort of intellectual or cognitive agent one is, whether one is open-minded, and so on. Right, so, good. Um, and how does the situationist challenge um, suitably alter, right, uh, apply uh, to the virtue epistemic uh, uh, conceptions? It applies most easily or, or most directly to versions of responsibilism. And the idea here is that uh, responsibilist traits just look a whole lot like uh, moral traits. Uh, in fact, they often are, are referred to just by taking the name of a, a moral virtue and throwing intellectual in front of it. So if you want to talk about someone who's got a moral virtue, you might say that they're courageous. If you talk about someone who's got an intellectual virtue that's akin to that, you talk about them as being intellectually courageous, right? So they're willing mm -hmm. to stand up for what they, uh, what they believe to be true, not, what they be not necessarily what they believe to be good. Um, and if the situation is challenged to moral virtue ethics goes through, it would actually be kind of surprising if uh, a highly analogous, uh, highly structurally similar version of uh, virtue epistemology were not challenged, because it seems like these are the same sorts of traits, and one should expect that one will find the same kinds, same, roughly the same kinds of evidence about them. Uh, I, I think that this is, in fact, exactly what we end up finding. So I look in particular at... Uh, some challenges to things like um, uh, intellectual courage. If you look, for instance, at the um, Ash paradigm, a well-known mm -hmm. paradigm in psychology, it turns out that you can, with fairly subtle and non-coercive social cues, get people to say things that they know to be false uh, over and over again. And they'll do it roughly half the time that you prompt them. That's pretty depressing because it suggests that when somebody really needs intellectual courage, when the stakes are higher, uh, when there's a bit more pressure uh, and the, the social influences are, are stronger, they'll be in even worse shape. Um, right. Another thing has to do with sort of open-mindedness. Right? It turns out that um, people behave as if they were open-minded and creative um, much more easily when you put them in a good mood. So one example of this is, uh, is known as the Dunker Candle task, uh, <laughs> after the last name of the person who came up with it. The idea with this task is that you give someone the, the following bits of things. You, you give them uh, a candle and a box of tacks and uh, a book of matches. And you show them a cork board on, that's glued to a wall, and you ask them to somehow get the candle up on that cork board uh, in such a way that when you light it with the matches, no wax drips on the floor. 
and people will try all sorts of things. They'll, they'll try, um, just directly, um, using the tacks to pin the candle to the wall. They'll try melting the candle a little bit and using the molten wax as glue, uh, which only serves in most cases to burn them. Uh, and they'll, they'll try a variety of other things. And it, the only thing that actually works is you empty out the box of tacks and you use that, you tack that to the cork board as a platform and then you're off to the races. Right. Now it turns out that the vast majority of people, even when they're given quite a bit of time, don't solve this. Now there are two ways, and, and it's, it's fairly clearly a, a test of something like creativity or mental flexibility or uh, some sort of intellectual virtue. Um, turns out that there are two ways in which you can get people to go from roughly uh, a quarter of them getting it right to roughly three quarters of them getting it right. You can either present the box and the tax separately so that they look at the box as having a function other than holding the tax. So you basically make the, the task easier or you can give them a cookie. And if you give them a cookie, uh, it, it's known that this sort of thing uh, induces a kind of openness to experience and uh, open-mindedness, uh, a, a disposition to consider uh, more distant possibilities. Uh, and they'll actually be even better at solving the task in the cookie condition than they are in the, uh, the box and tax separate condition. So it looks like when somebody solves a task like that, they're doing the open-minded thing. They're doing the sort of creative thing. And yet we wouldn't want to say that they are creative people because it takes this, this weird situational cue to get them going. Uh, the worry is that that sort of thing is going to infect uh, much of our intellectual lives and that when we end up doing the intellectually virtuous thing, uh, it'll be at least as much a matter of the situation being conducive um, in seemingly trivial and uh, uh, epistemically irrelevant ways than it will have to do with our own uh, internal traits or dispositions. And so then it seems as if, um, at least with respect to the responsibilist conception of the intellectual virtues, that... Um, uh, there's room for some factitious version of these virtues. That is that not only giving people cookies, but actually praising them for their creativity when there's some glimmer of evidence that they are creative helps them to cultivate, or is that even the right word, uh, creativity? Yeah, that's, that's right. So it looks like, as with moral virtues, praising someone for having uh, a motivational or uh, responsibilist kind of intellectual virtue can function as a self-fulfilling prophecy. Telling someone that they're creative will induce a certain amount of creativity. Telling someone that they're open-minded will induce a certain amount of open-mindedness and so on. So the idea then is that, well, okay, we might not be able to bring ourselves not to talk in this way. So we might as well do it with our eyes clear and open and know that what we're doing is sort of inducing rather than describing a trait. Uh, and uh, just as with moral virtues, we should be especially wary of attributing intellectual vices to people because that can function as a self-fulfilling prophecy as well.
Let me just ask one one sort of um, one further question that that is is not taken up in the book. Um, is there a worry that once we um, uh, go public with uh, our conception of factitious virtue, that there'll be something self-effacing about virtue ascriptions? That is, that any time somebody calls me creative or generous. I will regard them or I'll, or I'll suspect them of being um, manipulators. Good. So that goes back to the thing that I was that I mentioned before about uh, the discussion that Pettit and McGear have had about trust. Right. So mm-hmm. so if it's just a matter of manipulating someone, getting them to want me to continue praising them. Um, then if they know that that's what I'm doing, it seems pretty likely that they're not going to be influenced in the direction I want, and they might even go for, uh, in the other direction. Um, but it seems to me that as with moral virtues, there's more than one way to understand what's going on, and that other ways of understanding what's going on are more plausible than simple manipulation. So... Think about the the fact that um, it's just always going to be hard to know whether someone's got a trait because uh, traits are the sort of thing that you need a huge amount of evidence about before you can be certain that someone's got them. And yet we go around saying these things about people all the time. What we're doing is, is we're making guesses and we can be more or less charitable when we make our guesses about someone. So if I tell you after you solve some kind of problem, wow, you, you, you must be really creative, um, you know, even now, before you read the book, uh, that it, I have to be making an inference there. I'm guessing. I don't know for certain. And yet it doesn't seem untoward for me to do that. The idea is, is then that... Um, even if you know that I'm trying to sort of help you along, um, that can be interpreted not as manipulation, but as just a way for me to express my goodwill towards you. I'm trying to help you become the sort of person that you would want to be anyway. Uh, I'm not trying to take advantage of you or get something out of you or make you what I want you to be, but what you yourself wouldn't want to be. I see. I see. Well, good. Um, well, you've been very generous uh, with your time, Mark. Um, and uh, it's been great to talk to you about uh, the book, um, Character as Moral Fiction. Um, I always ask uh, people at the end a very cool question uh, of what are you up to next? Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I guess I'm working on four main projects projects. One is uh, an interdisciplinary thing on intellectual humility, and we're trying to come up with a scale of it that can be used as a a self-test or a kind of questionnaire, uh, as well as a uh, behavioral test. Uh, And we're trying to see basically how well you can predict someone's uh, intellectually uh, humble behavior based on what they say about themselves. Our guess is that it's not going to be very well because the sort of person who goes around saying I'm humble is probably not particularly humble and a humble person probably isn't going around saying uh, that, that that that's what they're like. So there's a sort of uh, paradox of self-reference there. 
Uh, I'm also working on a project uh, where uh, I'm data mining obituaries together with some uh, people here at University of Oregon. Uh, and what we're doing with those is uh, related to something I mentioned earlier, which is that uh, um, when we think about virtue, one way to sort of focus the mind is to think about what you would want said about yourself after you're dead or what you would want said about you in your obituary. And we've collected thousands and thousands of obituaries from local newspapers and are going through those sort of extracting the virtue language. Um, the other two things I'll just briefly mention are uh, a textbook on moral psychology, which is uh, going to come out with Polity Press, uh, and uh, a research monograph on Nietzsche's moral psychology, uh, which is going to come out with Cambridge. Oh, wonderful. Well, you've, you're quite busy, which is good. Um, well, uh, certainly uh, I'll keep an eye out for uh, uh, for some of the products of the research and uh, uh, certainly of the, the Cambridge book. Um, and uh, maybe we'll have you back on New Books in Philosophy to talk about Nietzsche. Um, but for now, I just want to thank you uh, for, uh, for joining us uh, to talk about your book. Thanks, Bob. And uh, thanks for your time. Yeah, sure. Take care now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Mark Alfano of the University of Oregon. We were talking about his new book, Character as Moral Fiction, recently published by Cambridge University Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening. <laughs>